Hey there, welcome back to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. Thank you all so much for your patience and support over the past few weeks. As some of you may have seen from my Instagram, I had to file a petition for an injunction against my abusive, now ex-boyfriend. The past few weeks have been really stressful, but on Monday the 19th, I appeared in court and I was granted the injunction for three years, so I'm definitely feeling a little better, but as all of you as all of you may know, because I'm sure you listen to other true crime podcasts, an injunction or restraining order doesn't guarantee safety. Unfortunately, if someone wants to hurt you and they have nothing to lose, they're going to hurt you regardless of the possible consequences. I mean, you've heard all the stories, like Chris Watts. Chris Watts never had a restraining order filed against him, and yet he still murdered his pregnant wife and two daughters. We didn't even get a lot of these domestic violence and stalking laws put into place until women died, you know, like Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, or like the stalking death of Rebecca Schaefer. Um, but we're officially back in business, and I may need to take some time to catch up on writing and, and editing, but I promise you'll be getting some more new content. So I would just want to jump right into the story today, but before that, I'm going to shed some light on another missing Indigenous woman. The Oglala Sioux Tribe Department of Public Safety is looking for help in locating a missing person. Annie Mariea Teresa Brokennose was 19 years old and she was reported missing on September 19th of this year by her family. The last time they heard from Broken Nose was on September 13th, 2022 at approximately 10.30 p.m. in Pine Ridge when she left the home to walk a friend home. Broken Nose is described as 5 feet 8 inches tall, 137 pounds. She has brown hair and brown eyes. If you see her or have any information about her whereabouts, please contact the OST Department of Public Safety Criminal Investigations Unit or Dispatch at 605-867-5111. As always, I'll be sure to include pictures of her along with all my sources for this episode in the show notes. After the break, we'll get into this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M e-n-t-o underscore m-o-r-i-i for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. Tucked away in East Texas's Piney Woods, about 20 miles from the Louisiana border, Carthage sits on what used to be one of the largest natural gas fields in the world. In the 40s and 50s, the town was known as the gas capital of the U.S., and its citizens believe it's so rich in history that they've built dueling historical museums on opposite sides of the town square. The Panola County Historical Jail Museum and the Panola County Heritage Museum and Texas Tea Room. 
These days, Chamber of Commerce representatives are promoting Carthage as Texas's country music capital. To improve tourist traffic, the Chamber's planning to open a new museum this year devoted solely to Texas-born country music stars, the Texas Country Music Hall of Fame. All in all, Carthage, which made it into the 1995 edition of The Best 100 Small Towns in America, is an immensely likable place. The kind of town where people get out of their cars to see which neighbors they can help whenever there's a traffic jam around the town square. Carthaginians are also conservative, politically and socially, which makes it hard to imagine that Bernhardt the II, who moved here in 1985, would end up becoming one of the most popular people in town. Compared with the men who passed their afternoons at Leon Schott's barber shop just off the square, the portly, mustachioed Bernie was, in the words of one person who knew him, peachy and sweet. When he wasn't in his dark funeral suit, he wore colorful Tommy Hilfiger clothes and drove around town in his Lincoln Continental, smiling broadly at whomever he saw. He wasn't bad looking and there were numerous girls in the community who would have dated him, says Don Lipsy, former owner of Hawthorne Funeral Home, who had hired Bernie. Don Lipsy recalled that Bernie showed no romantic interest in women his age at all. During their coffee shop talks, men around town insinuated that Bernie was what they referred to as a little light in the loafers. Bernhardt Bernie T. II was hired as an assistant funeral director at Hawthorne Funeral Home in Carthage by Don Lipsy. By all accounts, he was very well liked by everyone in the small town and was active in his Methodist church, taught Sunday school, and sponsored little league teams. No one had anything bad to say about Bernie. Carthage's citizens couldn't help but take a shine to him. Bernie clearly loved the small town life of East Texas. At First United Methodist, he was the tenor soloist in the choir. He taught Sunday school and sometimes, when the minister was sick or on vacation, he gave the sermon. Folks around town even stated that Bernie was better than the regular preacher. Bernie got involved with the drama and music departments at Panola College, and he became so renowned for his knowledge of Broadway musicals that he was asked to conduct the drama department's performances of Showboat and Guys and Dolls. He sang with the Shreveport Chamber Singers, a professional singing group just across the state line, and he served on the Chamber of Commerce's Christmas Decorating Committee, giving advice about where the lights and wreaths should be placed around the town square. Born in Tyler, Bernie spent his earliest years in Kilgore, a 45-minute drive from Carthage, where his father was the chairman of the Fine Arts Department at Kilgore Junior College. His mother died in a car wreck when he was only three, and his father, after remarrying and moving Bernie and his younger sister to Abilene, died after a long illness when Bernie was 15. To help support himself and his sister, Bernie took an after-school job at an Abilene funeral home, first doing yard work and then helping out at the funerals. Bernie's sister thinks that because of the loneliness he went through in his childhood, he made it his calling to serve people in times of their own need. She recalls that he wasn't a dour boy. He was popular at high school, and for kicks, he'd sneak the hearse on Fridays out of the funeral home and drive a bunch of his friends around Abilene. But he said a long time ago that he was meant to take care of others, and his sister thinks that's why the funeral business appealed to him. Paula Carter, a fellow church member and a counselor at the local high school, said Bernie brought a lot of compassion to Carthage. He was very quick to shake your hand and ask how you were doing, and if you told him you weren't doing too well, he would drop everything to talk to you and see what he could do. He sewed curtains for people who needed them, he helped others with their tax returns, and he began buying so many gifts for his new Carthage friends that, according to Don Lipsy, quote, the UPS truck started arriving in Carthage every day with something that Bernie had ordered from a catalog.
He received an associate's degree in mortuary science from the McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana, worked at a funeral home in town, and in 1985 came to work in Carthage, living in a small apartment just behind the Hawthorne Funeral Home. He was probably the most qualified young man I've ever seen, says Don Lipsy. He waited well in the families, he would sing solos behind the screen during the funeral, and he was a darn good embalmer. He had a talent of making the hair of the deceased look really natural. He was especially empathetic with older ladies who had just lost their husbands. He led them weeping to a sofa in the parlor, handed them handkerchiefs, quoted comforting scripture, and stood close to them at the interment, always prepared to catch them in case they fainted as their husbands' caskets were lowered into the earth. In the weeks after the funeral, he would call the widows, offering to pick up their medicines at the drugstore. Some of them loved him so much that they told their children that Bernie had to sing at their funeral when they passed on. Quote, with that nice tenor voice of his, I just knew Bernie could sing me right into heaven, one Carthage widow says. Carthage is full of well-to-do widows who've inherited small fortunes from their rich husbands. Some of them can be seen driving their huge Cadillacs up and down the town streets, occasionally bumping into trees or stop signs when their tiny feet miss the brake pedal. They're a spirited bunch, even if they're somewhat behind the times. Bernie wasn't partial outright to the wealthier widows. One of the first women he took a special interest in was Gracie Duke, the widow of a mechanic. When she complained about an ache in her bones, Bernie felt so sorry for her that he took her to Hot Springs, Arkansas, so she could sit in the baths. But he would eventually give the most attention to the richest widow in Carthage, Mrs. Marjorie Nugent, who arrived in Hawthorne in March of 1990 for the funeral of her husband, who was worth between $5 million and $10 million. Born in 1915 just outside Carthage, her father ran a grocery store, Marjorie Midya attended Louisiana Tech, where she met R.L. Rod Nugent, who had recently graduated from the school with an electrical engineering degree. After their marriage, Rod took a job with Magnolia Oil, which later became Mobile, and the two of them lived throughout Louisiana, New Mexico, and Texas, spending more than a dozen years in Midland, where their only child, Rod Jr., was raised. In 1989, at the end of his career, the eldest Nugent decided to bring his wife back to her hometown. He bought controlling interest in the First National Bank of Carthage, and the couple built a sprawling 6,000-square-foot stone home at the edge of town, surrounded by a stone wall and electronic gates. Although Marge Nugent rarely left the estate, it wasn't long before she became the talk of the town. Curious neighbors learned that she refused to speak to her own sister, who was also a Carthage resident, because of an argument the two had back in the 80s over their dead mother's estate. Another sister lived in Ohio. Marge Nugent had so many disagreements with her son, who had become a prominent Amarillo pathologist, that she would only occasionally speak to him. According to most locals, she acted as if she was too good for Carthage. If she had held her nose any higher, one man said of her, she would have drowned in the rainstorm. It was said that when she made an appearance at the bank, she sat in a chair in the lobby and barely nodded to people. She didn't participate in any civic activities or contribute to worthy Carthage causes, and she seemed to hate spending money around town. When a local vet told her that he would charge $45 for treating her dog, she argued with him until he lowered his price. Even those close to her admit that she was imperious and critical, lashing out at whoever disappointed her. If she liked you, she sent lovely birthday cards and thank you notes, says Lloyd Tiller, one of her stockbrokers. But you had to cater to Margie and constantly flatter her. She could throw a temper tantrum if everything didn't go her way. 
a close relative who wished to remain anonymous, says that there were times when Marge seemed to lapse into a low-level clinical depression. Quote, it was like these blue periods came on, and when they did, she could be very biting in her comments to people. Margie was a very difficult woman to love. In March of 1990, while working at the funeral of Mr. Nugent, who died unexpectedly of heart failure, 32-year-old Bernie met Marge Nugent. Bernie had involved Marge's husband and sang at his memorial service. In a short time period, Bernie became devoted to Marge and was her constant companion. Bernie would arrive at her estate for lunch, leave little notes of endearment for her around the house, and take her to see musicals at the local college. Not long after the funeral, she gave Bernie Mr. Nugent's Rolex watch, worth $12,000, a startling act of generosity from a woman known as the town Grinch. In 1991, she ordered officials at First National Bank to accept checks from her account signed by Bernie so that he could handle some of her bills. When Tiller asked if she was certain she could trust Bernie, Marge grew livid and threatened to move all her stocks out of Tiller's brokerage. Bernie began spending his days off with Marge, which reportedly upset some of the town's other widows with whom he'd spent so much time over the years. One afternoon, Don Lipsy called Marge looking for Bernie. She told him that Bernie was in one of her bedrooms taking a nap. Then word spread that Marge had gone on a cruise, something her husband had never wanted to do, and that she had paid Bernie to go with her. The two even slept in the same cabin. Was the cherubic Bernhardt the II trying to seduce the haughty Marjorie Nugent, or was it the other way around? Some people were shocked when Bernie was seen holding Marge's hand in town, but Bernie was quick to explain that Marge wobbled when she walked. For Bernie, who is making a reported annual salary of about $18,000 at the funeral home, Marge's money must have been tempting. She was making between $200,000 and $300,000 a year in oil and gas royalty payments alone. He was constantly behind in his American Express payments, and Bernie owed the IRS $4,000 in back taxes. Bernie was a bioholic, says his sister. Quote, he not only wanted to experience the finer things in life, he loved buying as much as he could for others. He'd order the same items over and over, like three of the same chairs or boxes of cross pens just so he could give them away. In late 1993, Bernie told Don Lipsy that Marge Nugent had asked him to work for her, at a much higher salary, as her business manager and escort on trips around the world. What few in town knew, and what Bernie wasn't saying, was that Mrs. Nugent had already changed her will, making Bernie the sole heir to her multi-million dollar estate. She later told a cousin that she didn't want to leave a cent to her son or her immediate family because they didn't appreciate her. How could Bernie risk Marge's wrath, and thus risk losing her money by turning down her job offer? With money Mrs. Nugent advanced to him, Bernie bought a two-bedroom home about a mile from the Nugent estate. He set out his collection of black and white plastic penguins in the front yard. He liked penguins, he told others, because they looked so well-dressed. He hung white curtains on the living room window and displayed his collection of more than 70 wristwatches in the hallway. He threw a Christmas open house, inviting members of the Chamber of Commerce, professors at the college, and other Carthage VIPs. One widow who was there took a look at the polished furniture and the porcelain penguins on the side tables and remarked that his home felt like a dollhouse. Bernie found himself living a dream, says his sister. For the first time in his life, he got to be somebody. Bernie earned his pilot's license and bought a couple of small airplanes. He took Marge's seat on the board of the First National Bank, and he regularly placed calls to Lloyd Tyler, irritating the stockbroker to no end with recommendations of stocks that he thought should be bought for Marge. 
What do you know about the stock market? Tiller once shouted at Bernie. You're nothing but an undertaker. A few minutes later, Marge called Tiller and told him in an icy voice that if he spoke to Bernie that way again, she would be changing stockbrokers. On their vacations together, Bernie and Marge traveled all over the world, visiting Egypt and Russia. They flew to New York to see Broadway musicals, and they sailed on the Queen Mary for Europe, returning on the Concorde. It was a glamorous life, but as Don Lipsy warned, Bernie paid a price. According to Bernie's friends, he had to have Marge's medicines laid out every day. Perhaps Bernie decided he deserved extra pay for his service to Marge, or perhaps he thought he could do whatever he wanted with her money since he knew it'd be coming to him anyway after her death. Or, as his sister suggests, maybe Bernie genuinely believed in the good of giving. For whatever reason, Bernie became the town's Robin Hood. Unbeknownst to Mrs. Nugent, he started slipping money out of her hefty bank accounts and giving it to anyone he thought could use help. He bought at least 10 cars for people who couldn't afford one, telling them to pay him back when they could. He bought a home for a struggling young couple. He provided scholarships to students at Panola College. He pledged $100,000 to the new building campaign at First United Methodist, and he led the fundraising drive for the Boy Scouts. When a woman who owned a local trophy shop told him that her business was failing, Bernie stepped in and bought it so that Carthage High School and youth sports team could get their trophies for another year. Bernie was on a one-man campaign to improve culture in Carthage, giving away tickets to the college theater productions and paying for the expenses of the choir concerts. When a man who once worked with him at the funeral home told him that he wanted to open a clothing store, Bernie agreed to fund it, saying that Carthage needed its own Neiman Marcus. The man's idea of what Carthage needed was a little different. He proudly opened Boot Scootin' Western Wear. Some townspeople thought Bernie's presence did have a positive effect on Marge Nugent. At his urging, she joined the Methodist church, and she once had the women's Sunday school class over to her house for brunch. But sometime in 1995, Bernie told his sister that he thought Marge was developing mild dementia. She had fired the gardeners, he said, because the flowers hadn't bloomed on time. She also made Bernie buy a 22 rifle to shoot the armadillos that were rooting up her front yard. Bernie found himself stalking the armored pests while Marge supervised from the front porch. Bernie said to me, she's so controlling it just wears me down, his sister recalls. I asked him why he didn't quit, and he gave me this tortured look and said, because I'm her only friend. I have to stay because I'm the only one she has. He drove to her house every morning to make coffee for her, ran errands for her, had lunch with her every day, picked out her clothes, plucked her chin hairs, and clipped her toenails. She demanded time and attention from him almost constantly, and had a reputation in town for arrogance and sourness. If Bernie was ever late for their 11.45 lunch dates, she would call his pager incessantly until he called her back. If Bernie was spending time with anyone else, he would have to repeatedly check in with Marge by phone, about which he said, if I don't call her, she'll give me living hell. Despite her absolute dominance of him and her extreme neediness and possessiveness, Bernie stuck with her because he didn't want her to feel abandoned. He admitted the money and luxury was a lure, but he also said, quote, I was also afraid to leave her. She could be very vindictive. I'd seen that. And over time, Marge got more controlling and hateful, Bernie said. On Thanksgiving 1996, Bernie went alone to see his sister, telling her that Marge had decided to spend the holiday in Ohio with the one sister she was still talking to. At Christmas, Bernie decorated Marge's home, but he again told those who asked that she was in Ohio. Early that spring, he began telling people that Marge was in bed because of an illness and not accepting visitors. By late spring, he said she was in a nursing home outside Carthage, recuperating from a stroke. 
He told Lloyd Tiller that she was losing her mind and perhaps had Alzheimer's. Tiller says he didn't entirely believe Bernie's explanations, but it never occurred to him that Bernie might have harmed her. Ruth Cockrell, a Carthage widow who is Mrs. Nugent's first cousin, was also dubious. Quote, I was worried something had happened to her, but I didn't know who to talk to about it. Bernie was so beloved in Carthage that if I suggested he had done anything wrong, I would have been laughed out of town. Meanwhile, the maid continued coming to the empty estate to clean the house, and the yardman kept cutting the yard. Bernie kept giving. Money for jet skis and pickup trucks, and to every student who performed in Panola College's production of Guys and Dolls, a $200 gift certificate to Boot Scoot and Western Wear. In April, Bernie performed with the Shreveport Chamber Singers. His solo rendition of Stephen Foster's Beautiful Dreamer was so heartfelt, the audience gave him a prolonged standing ovation. In June, he went on a Carthage Chamber of Commerce trip to Nashville to view a new Opryland exhibit honoring Tex Ritter. When he made sure to pay extra attention to one of the Carthage widows who had come along on the trip, pushing her through Opryland in her wheelchair, people patted him on the back and said, good old Bernie. Then, in early July 1997, an unidentified Carthage woman called the Sheriff's Department and said she was worried about Mrs. Nugent. Had anyone there seen her lately? Because of more pressing matters around town, sheriff's deputies didn't look into the matter for nearly a month. Bernie, whom they found in Las Vegas singing at a Panola College student's wedding, explained that Mrs. Nugent was staying in a hospital in Temple under an assumed name and didn't wish to be contacted. But deputies couldn't find anyone at the hospital who matched her description. They called Marge's son in Amarillo, and he came to Carthage with his eldest daughter to search the house. When he told a deputy how odd it was that the deep freezer had been taped shut, he took a look inside. At the bottom, wrapped in a white sheet on top of flounder and underneath Marie Callender's chicken pot pies, was Marge Nugent. Not wanting to destroy evidence, the sheriff ordered his deputies to lift the entire deep freezer, with Marge still inside, onto a pickup truck and drive it to Dallas for an autopsy. The deputies connected a gasoline-powered generator to the freezer to keep it working, but it would take two additional days for Marge to thaw in order for the autopsy to be performed. Other deputies spread throughout town looking for Bernie. They found him preparing to take a team of Little League baseball players and their parents to dinner. He seemed surprised that deputies wanted to ask him some questions. With officers looming over him in a small room at the sheriff's department, Bernie tried to keep his composure. But he grew increasingly nervous, and he finally calmly told them the events that transpired the previous November 19th. Despite being friends, traveling companions, and possibly lovers, by August of that year, Bernie had been having thoughts of hitting Marge in the head with a baseball bat. He recoiled at the thought, but only because he didn't want her to suffer. By late 1996, Bernie began resenting Marge. In his eyes, she had become hateful, possessive, evil, and wicked. And yet, despite these strong negative feelings, Bernie said he still cared for her. In the early hours of November 19, 1996, Bernie found himself driving over to Marge's house as it had become part of his daily routine. He pulled into her driveway around 7 a.m., and after saying his hellos upon entering the house, he made his way to the kitchen. He'd gotten used to being there early to make Marge's coffee. Like clockwork, he filled the coffee maker with water, changing the filter and filling it with her favorite grounds. After turning on the machine, the coffee dripped slowly into the carafe, the intoxicating scent pervading the air. This was his only morning task, so after pouring her a fresh cup, he got back into his car and headed home to shower. 
It was about 10 a.m. when Bernie was back at Marge's house. It was just the two of them, not unusual given their history over the past decade. Marge had a rifle in a closet in her house where she kept a sizable deep freezer. She kept it handy there for shooting crows and blackbirds in her yard, but Bernie had moved it from its usual spot to the bathroom near the garage. She took the lead walking throughout the hallway to the garage, and after passing the threshold, she made her way towards Bernie's parked car. Bernie slipped away to grab the rifle he hid in the bathroom. As Marge walked in front of him, Bernie aimed the rifle at her back and squeezed the trigger. She fell face first onto the ground with a loud thud, still breathing heavily. Bernie noticed the labored rise and fall of her back as she gasped for air. He aimed at her back once again, pulling the trigger another three times. He felt this was the best way to handle Marge. After all, he didn't want her to suffer. Bernie then took Marge by the ankles and began to drag her from the garage to the closet with the deep freezer. He left her nearby while he emptied all the food from the freezer, then grabbed one of Marge's Land's End brand white sheets. He gently wrapped her in the linen. A sheet that had once warmed and comforted Marge was now her burial shroud. It wasn't an unusual or uncomfortable sight for Bernie. A shrouded body was actually something he felt at home around. After placing her in the deep freezer, Bernie covered her up with the food and placed two pieces of masking tape on the freezer door. He walked back into the garage and hosed down the blood that seeped into the floor. Bernie swept up the bullets and some leaves and then threw them out. After cleaning up the aftermath of the murder, Bernie went to the rehearsal of a college production of Guys and Dolls and bought a pizza for the cast using Marge's credit card. When anyone asked about Marge, she'd make excuses, saying they'd just missed her, she was visiting family, or that she was under the weather or napping. Marge's son, Rod, finally took it upon himself to search Marge's home, and then he discovered Bernie's grisly secret. IRS agents arrived in Carthage to charge Bernie with money laundering. It's estimated that he took more than $1 million from Marge. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison for killing her. After a group of women tried to raise the money to meet Bernie's $1.5 million bond, the DA went to the Justice of the Peace and filed additional theft charges against him for stealing money from Marge's account after she was dead, and he got the bond raised to $2.7 million. While incarcerated, Bernie was a model prisoner and sang in the prison choir. He cross-stitched memorials for families who had lost a relative. In May 2014, Bernie filed a writ of habeas corpus, claiming that his constitutional rights had been violated. Some believe that the confession was coerced, that Bernie was humiliated into signing it without a lawyer present. He claims that deputies shamed him and threatened him with exposure due to homemade sex tapes they found in the house, depicting Bernie with two married men with whom he was having secret affairs. In the writ, he alleged that Marge was abusive and controlling, which led him to murder her, as it put him in a state of mind that recalled having been sexually abused by an uncle when he was a child. It was argued that Bernie had been able to repress and compartmentalize the memories of this trauma, but the repeated abusive behavior from Marge and the psychological hold she had on him put him into a dissociative state in which he committed the murder. This theory was supported by forensic psychiatrist Dr. Richard Pesikoff. Based on this, Bernie was actually released on bail and was a free man for two years, during which time he moved in with filmmaker Richard Linklater, who had made a movie based on the case in 2011, starring Jack Black and Shirley MacLaine, called Bernie. In the movie, Marge's character is consistent with Bernie's claim of her being unpleasant, controlling, and abusive. Marge's son Rod and his daughter believe that the film Bernie not only characterized Marge unfairly, but also contributed to Bernie being able to be released on bail. 
In contradiction, other family members said that the movie was accurate and recounted stories of her meanness and abusive behavior. Joe Rhodes, Marge's nephew, wrote that she was, quote, depending on whom you ask, the meanest woman in East Texas. He also states that she wasn't on speaking terms with anyone in her immediate family by the time she died. Joe also recounts such abusive behavior as Marge locking him in her house for two days and not allowing him to call home, chasing him with garden shears, and threatening to have him committed to a mental institution for not cutting his hair. Joe's mother, who is Marge's sister, said, quote, Sometimes I think she was the devil on earth. Regardless, on April 22, 2016, Bernie was found responsible for the murder, and this time, he was sentenced to 99 years or life in prison. Bernie Teedy will be eligible for parole in 2029. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune into next week's Story from the Mortuary.